Marks Magnus. <laughs> Delayed <laughs> whoop. Delayed whoop. We had a guest whooper. We had a guest whooper this week in the studio. My my, uh, um, my daughter has uh, has been hearing me shout "Welcome back to Marks Madness" as she's tried to lay down for bed uh, consistently, and and since she can hear me through the floor, and I do the rest of the podcast quieter where I don't keep her up, she's been itching to do that, and then she got nervous right in the middle. <laughs> And stage fright stage fright comes for the best of us the that, podcasting world right. is not for the week that's right yeah hey i'm not above it you know i <laughs> oh man well that all what? being said it is it is Get time once again for mark's madness my name is nathan my name's david and we're doing and it again doing it again we will be taking you into shortly into uh the fun and excitement that is neo-colonialism by kwame Nkrumah. but before we do that we're gonna lead like we usually do with current events for the week and then for yes that, i kick it to david ah uh, goodness i feel off track i did not have current events prepared um Let's see. Last I've heard, Zelensky has been begging the U.S. not to warmonger using them. So, yeah, even Biden's little, like, neo-Nazi Ukrainian puppet is like, what the fuck? Russia's not being aggressive. Please don't start World War Three. And Biden's been like, yeah, war boner, baby. Um <laughs> So we have that. Um, obviously, we still have COVID raging. Um, I had totally forgotten about Mali, which is in the middle of an uprise to, uh, you know, push back on French colonialism. So excellent for the, the citizens of, of Mali, France, get out of Africa. Um, oh, let's see. The NYPD put on one of their big displays. So when cops. All right. So remember, we've talked about this before, right? So many, so many times. Okay. It doesn't matter if cops were the most dangerous job in the world. They are drummed up as protecting people and all they do is enforce a racial caste and a colonial, a settled colonial empire, uh, domestically, uh, as well as protecting property. And so they harm all of us as workers, as a structure because of whose interests they protect, which is a class we don't belong to. Okay. And of course, you know, by holding this up, they hold up the settler colonialism that spurred all of this capitalism stuff and they hold up the racial hierarchy that was built in and baked into this this country uh, from the get-go, okay? Additionally, they love to lie. They just fucking lie all day. And that would be bad enough just on its own because they get to be the official word, but also like the media just takes their official word for it. And then... Then they turn around and one of the things they lie about is how dangerous their job is, even though driving a trash truck is more dangerous. Driving a taxi cab is more dangerous. Food delivery is more dangerous, right? Um, these are all jobs that, that have more deaths uh, per capita than cops. And on top of that, most cop deaths are – so content warning. We, we will be talking about you know suicide, death, things like that. Uh, but one of the, the, the leading causes – you know, is suicides, which is not caused by like, you know, some criminal firing back at them or shooting them or, or something going awry, right? That's, that's self-inflicted. And it only, of course, happens more because they have access to the very weapons that they suppress and kill the public with. Uh, beyond that, one of the leading causes is car accidents, right? What's not the leading cause is someone attacking cops. That just does not happen. And recently, some of the leading causes have been COVID, which is the leading causes of deaths in all kinds of jobs, especially restaurants workers and they just bullshit count that in as work deaths right the only ones that that probably should count in that category is the car wrecks and even then that 
that's not like valiantly dying on the job, serving the people and protecting against this dangerous criminals like they make it out to be. That's dying in a fucking car wreck because they drive around to harass people all day and usually speed and don't give a shit because they think they're above everything. Right. Yep. Um, even the more reasonable cop deaths, like, you know, if they get clipped, pulling out someone over the side of the road, you know what you could do with that? You cannot make cops fucking patrol around and annoy people in traffic all the fucking time right um so there are so many more dangerous jobs on top of that so how do they enforce this other than you know tv shows and and newspapers breathlessly repeating stuff well they put on this big propaganda so someone is killed by cops which happens way more often than them being attacked on the job um or someone is mauled by cops and, and faces police brutality and you have a vigil or a protest supporting them right but especially even a vigil and they come and they they harass you they beat you up they trip you up they maul you they tear gas you they do all the above okay um but then you have their funeral and it's just absurd and all day they'll say hey you got to fund us more we can't be off the streets we can't take a day off you can't we have to you have to pay us all this overtime we we're needed we're needed we're needed but then propaganda time comes on and it's you couldn't even go without us for a day good luck stopping the criminals when they know we're off but then they have this giant funeral that they publish and you could see like thousands of them are not on duty they're standing around in white gloves just fucking saluting one of them that dies probably of covid uh most of the time or what was this well, this one I think actually was something on the job and they, they do this giant fucking propaganda funeral to drum up how dangerous their job is and, and no one is needing them anywhere but this damn funeral and of course it's also just as much about intimidation you can see that they're an enormous army and NYPD especially you know um, so they are one of you know five different just municipal police departments this is not counting you know ICE and um you know, uh, um, FBI and, and all these other, you know, larger, um, police units that are still in fact everywhere, right? This is just the municipal cops, not even county, the municipal cops for five different cities have police budgets larger than certain countries. And the NYPD is the biggest. It's over $6 million uh, a year, which would put it, I think, 32nd or 33rd overall in countries' militaries around the world. Right. Good grief. Yeah, I mean, just just absurd stuff, right? Higher than than all the enemy countries you hear about, like Iran or the DPRK or Venezuela. Uh, those are much smaller budgets than the NYPD, and so you just see this like massive army of people, um, and that's really what they are. They are a massive oh, army. Yeah. They're an occupying force, to be yeah, sure. Yeah, one hundred percent. And so there was a big, you know, propaganda NYPD funeral. Um, and then I think we're about to get hit with some big snowstorms, so it'll, it'll be old news by the time this comes out. But um, yeah. since snow may be happening when this comes out, be sure that you're prepared, especially uh, for you know houseless folks and 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 anyone you know needing or seeking shelter, heat. A lot of people have trouble with gas bills or electric bills. Um, you know, just certain ways that you need to be able to, to aid, um, you know, comrades and, and the people that we look to support. Amen. Uh, with that, we are going to launch into our work for this week, which again, as I've said at the top, is Neocolonialism by Kwame Nkrumah. And we will be starting with Responsible Today for Four-Fifths of France's Output of Aluminum, Pekingese Trading in the Metal Accounts for Nearly 60% of Its Turnover. 
its only sizable French competitor is Eugene, or Eugene, which collaborates with Pekeni on an investment policy, as we note above, and in a joint sales subsidiary, Aluminum Francais. Both firms are expanding rapidly, and Pekeni has a widespread operation has as widespread operations as the British and American aluminum companies, though the latter have greater output. It is expected that Pekeni Eugene capacity may reach 300,000 tons by 1963. Pekeni uses 15% of a total French power of a total French power output, so that the discovery of natural gas at Lac in southwestern France made a considerable contribution to its expansion. It has pushed the aluminum sector of its exports to 37% and hopes to save on its production costs by the introduction of a new process for reducing bauxite to aluminum. A pilot plant has been put into operation and it successfully enabled Pekeni to expand into new aluminum industries. Through the Banque de Paris, which is said to be the largest shareholder in the important Franco-Norwegian chemical concern Norsk Hydro, majority controlled by the Norwegian government, Pekeni may become linked with the project. The Norwegians are anxious to increase their output from its present level of 200,000 tons to 600,000 tons by 1970. Already, Pekeni is in consortia operating in Greece, Spain, and Argentine, and has holdings in Senegal and Madagascar. As a matter of fact, there is a hardly a new consortium springing up in Africa today, particularly in the Maghreb, in which Pekeni does not have an ore. It certainly has a watchful eye on the vast natural gas deposits of the Sahara, which are not uneconomically distant from the bauxite fields of Mali. The International Nickel Fields B- Field binds a select courtier of extractive processing and financing concerns whose control keeps it within fairly exclusive numerical limits. Grouped around the International Nickel Company of Canada Limited, INCO, Falconbridge, Sherrett Gordon Mines Limited of Canada, and Faraday Uranium Mines and Freeport Sulphur Co. of the United States are not geographically confined. In unraveling their engagements, we find the penetration in Africa as well as in other parts of the world. Inco's direct link with the Oppenheimer mining interest in Africa, bringing it back to Oppenheimer as we have to do, yes, has already been made apparent through the interlocking directorships of Sir Ronald L. Prane and Sir Otto Niemeyer. We will see further how, through its interests in certain mines, these are connected indirectly with combinations having definite ties with the exploitation of Africa's mineral resources. It is when the financial interests behind them are examined that we find the continuity of power, and then we get a chart. Moving on, the name Mond immediately brings to mind nickel, as well as explosives, chemicals, and arms, and we find it linked to the most powerful international nickel organization under the form of International Nickel Co., Mond Limited. It was the founder of Brunner Mond & Co. Limited, Ludwig Mond, who having invented the ammonia soda, soda process and found a cheap source of power from small coal, discovered a method of recovering nickel from low grade ores. This led to the finding, acquisition, <coughs> excuse me, and development of mines in Canada, the world's present chief source. The ores continuing coming from almost totally from the Sudbury district of Ontario. Brunner Mon, together with Novel Industries, United Alkali Co. Lim- Limited, an amalgamation of 48 works, and British Dye Stuffs Corporations Limited, were knit together in December 1926 to form Imperial Chemical Industries Limited. All right, oh, that's, goodness. That's, you can't call things that. <laughs> yeah. You can't, you just, you can't do that. That's not too good. Too on the nose. It's so. It's it's terrifying. It your company name shouldn't impose fear in in bystanders. That's that's just bad PR. 
Bond Nickel Co. Limited was established in 1914 to exploit the mine that adjoined Inco's properties on the Sudbury Range. The interests of both companies were fused in 1928. Change of name to its present form was made in February 1961, and the company is a subsidiary of Anglo-Canadian Mining and Refining Co. Limited, which owns the 9 million shares issued out of the 11 million authorized to compose the capital of 5 million pounds. Anglo-Canadian is itself a wholly owned subsidiary of Inco. Among the extensive properties and plants owned by International Nickel Mond in the United Kingdom are a refining works in South Wales and a precious metals refinery in a London industrial area, a number of rolling mills in various parts of Britain, as well as the entire share of capital of Henry Wigan & Co. Limited, manufacturers of nickel and nickel alloys and other products. Two interesting items in the Nickel Mons treasury are the entire capital of Clydeac Estates Limited and Mon Nickel Retirement System Trustees Limited. This is the United Kingdom end of INCO, which has appointed its delegate board and consolidates the UK accounts with its own. In order to keep its plants working to the fullest capacity, INCO has arrangements with associates for the treatment of their products. Hence, certain nickel concentrates uh, in excess of its own treatment facilities are worked for share at Gordon Mines, and there is an agreement with Texas Gulf Sulphur Co. covering the operation of a pilot plant to investigate the process for the recovery of elemental sulfur. These agreements issue out of certain common holdings that give identity of interest to apparently competitive concerns tied up with oil and its allied financial groups. David, you want to take over? Yeah. Uh, the controlling interests in INCO are not apparent as there's no obvious United States parent, although American capital from most of the leading financial groups predominates. And INCO owns the entire capital stock of the international nickel company, Inc., which owns the operating assets located in the United States and of Whitehead Metal Products, Inc., American distributors of non-ferrous metals. Lawrence Rockefeller is on the United States INCO board. So we're right back to the Rockefellers. We got all the hits in oh, here, guys. Yeah, but it never, it's the same five guys. It's the, it's same, the same, fi- same five guys. It's the same five guys. Just wait. I, I have a feeling JP Morgan's coming up. Uh, oh, he's coming. Yeah, he's coming. Yeah, I can kind of see his, his name out of the corner of my eye. Um, the Canadian company's chairman is H.S. Wingate, a director of the American Banking House of JP Morgan and Company. Told you I could see it out of the corner of my there eye. There it is. It's yeah. coming, baby. <laughs> the Canadian Pacific Railway, William C. Bellinius. Uh, an INCO director also sits in the directorates of various Bell Telephone Companies, as well as on that of Guarantee Trust Company of New York, Morgan Controls. Another INCO director, R.S. McLaughlin, is director of General Motors. Oh, boy. There uh, we go. And on the board of the Toronto Dominion Bank, which links with DuPont interests. Just this is all, all this of the big everybody. companies. This is everyone. Uh, DuPont itself is under heavy Morgan influence. Donald Hamilton McLaughlin is president. President of American Trust Company, which has three interlocking directorates with Morgan Banks and insurance companies. He also presides over the board of Homestake Mining, linked through its holdings with Idorado I- Idorado Mining Company with Newmont Mining Company within the Morgan sphere of influence. Cerro de Pasco, another of D. H. McLaughlin's directorships, owns a number owns a number of companies operating mining and oil properties in Peru. Newmont Mining has substantial interest in Cerro de Pasco. Theodore Giles Montague, another American on Inco's board, is chairman of the Borden Company, a trustee of the Bank of New York, and a director of American Sugar Refining Company. 
All three of these companies is within the family control of the Rockefellers. John Farfield Thompson also reflects U.S. interests on the Inco board, another trustee of the Bank of New York. He represents the same interest on Inco's American distributing organization, Whitehead Metal Products Company, and points the link with Texas Gulf Sulphur under Morgan and Standard Oil domination, Standard Oil being Rockefeller. Uh, J.F. Thompson reveals the African interests of these groups by his directorships of American Metal Climax and its British associates, Amalgamated Metal Corporation at Henry Gardner and Company Limited, which I think we already talked about a couple of those, both of those, um, who are also connected with French tin and nickel interests. These are some of the giant combinations involving tin, aluminum, and nickel, which are draining away the mineral resources of Africa. So, I mean, again, even when you're talking about these unrelated metals, it comes back to these same oil companies. It comes back to these same big banks. It's the same conglomerates, and it's just different fields they work in and different ways. They're they're broken up with partial ownership amongst each other and appointees from each other's boards. The same story we've been rolling for several chapters yep and speaking of several chapters we are moving on to our next chapter uh a chapter all about the union minerai du hot katanga Hot Katanga. Yep. All right. We're, we're going to say Hot Katanga a lot, and I'm praying I'm getting it right. There <laughs> is perhaps hardly an industrial organization in the world that has been so widely publicized over the past five years as Union Minerai. Because of the ducks and drakes, it has played with the establishment of Congo independence and unification. This mining company, this great mining company, has been since Congo's independence the bone of contention between the Congolese government and the secessionist Katanga province. Principally owned by a small shareholders, its control rested with Belgian and British financiers. The largest block of stock in the company, 18.14% of the 1.242 million shares, which formerly belonged to the Belgian colonial administration, passed at independence to the Congolese government and was held in trust by the Belgian government for a time, pending the settlement of political problems. In November 1964, Moise Tsombe, who had then returned from exile to become Congolese prime minister, published a decree which had the effect of transferring control of Union Minerai from Belgian banking and other interests to the Congolese government without compensation. The decree gave the Congolese government the entire portfolio of 315,000 shares in Union Minerai held by the Committee Special du Katanga, a concession-granting concern, two-thirds of which is owned by the Congolese government and one-third by Belgian interests. The Belgian government considered that 123,000 of these shares belonged to the Compagnie du Katanga, which is an offshoot of the Société Générale de Belgique. The effect of the decree was to reduce the voting strength in Union Minerai of Societe Generale and its associates, Tanganyika Concessions Limited, from 40% to less than 29%, while the Congolese government's votes were raised from nearly 24% to nearly 36%. This meant that in any policy dispute, the Belgians would have to rally the support of small shareholders comprising about 36%. For weeks, the Belgian government and the Congolese government talked of arranging meetings to discuss the situation. Each had a trump card. The Belgian government held the entire portfolio in trust, while the Congolese government's strength lay in the expiration of Union Minerais' lease in 1990. On January 28, 1965, Deschambe arrived in Brussels for talks with the Belgian foreign minister, M. Spock. He asked for the immediate handing over of the portfolio shares valued at 120 million pounds. These included 21% of the voting rights in Union Minerai. The Belgians, on the other hand, demanded compensation for Belgian property damaged in the Congo Troubles and for chartered companies who lost mineral concessions under the November Decree. 
They also insisted that the arrangement should cover the interest payable on defaulted Congo bonds. I feel like I'm really concerned with something just referred to as the Congo Troubles, especially when it was getting out of some of the most brutal colonialism uh, that had ever been seen in the world. So I feel yep. like that's not that, that. That feels a little gross. I'm sorry. That feels very, 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 gross. very gross. Uh, after days of hard bargaining, Tashambe scored what appeared to be a great triumph. He secured the 120 million pound portfolio shares and also received a check from Union Midaray for 600. 60,000 represented royalties and dividends on the Congo's 210,000 shares in Union Minaret, which gave it 24% of voting rights in the company with his diplomatic victory returned to the Leopoldville, Leopoldville and his hands strengthened to deal with the continuing political military problems of the country. Since then, he has had ca- caused power to wonder how much of a victory he achieved. In my address to the Ghana National Assembly on 22 March 1965, I gave details of the Congo situation. In the five years preceding independence, the net outflow of capital to Belgium alone was £464 million. When the Mumba assumed power, so much capital was taken out of Congo that there was a national deficit of £40 million. Tashambe is now told the Congo has an external debt of $900 million. This is a completely arbitrary figure. It amounts to open exploitation based on naked colonialism. $900 million is supposed to be owed to the United States and Belgian monopolies after they have raped the Congo of sums of $2,500 million, so basically £2.5 billion, £464 million, pounds, and £40 million. Pounds. Imagine what this would have meant to the prosperity and well-being of the Congo. And of course, look at where the Congo is. Right, But the tragic comedy continues. To prop up Deshambe, the monopolies decided that this invented debt of $900 million, only $250 million has to be paid. How generous indeed. Bond values in 1959 at £267 million, representing wealth extracted from the Congo, are to be returned to the Congo after ratification by both parliaments. But the monopolies have decided that the value of the bonds is now only £107 million. So the profits of these monopoly net a hundred. The monopolies further announced a fraudulent program to liquidate so-called Congolese external debts of £100 million. Upon announcing this, they declared the Congo is to be responsible for further external debt of £200 million. In plain words, they are depriving the Congolese people of another £100 million. They call this generosity. We learn that the monopolies have declared a further burden for the suffering people in the Congo, an internal debt of 200 million pounds on which the Congo must pay additional compensation of 12.5 million pounds to Belgian private interests. Beyond beyond this, a joint Congolese-Belgian organization has been formed. It is withdrawing old bonds and replacing them with 40-year issues valued at 100 million pounds. These will pay interest at 3.5% annum. Note this, as the old bonds are worthless, the new organization must pay all interest in the old bonds from 1960 to 65. The monopolies and each holder of the worthless old bonds must be given a new bond for every old one, which is pretty fucking ridiculous, hence the all caps from Nkrumah here. Yeah. Uh, in short, the organization is a device to take more, to enrich the monopolies further, and to defraud the suffering Congo. Again, right now, what is the poorest country in the world uh the congo right it's the only one that that i think beats out haiti in in per capita poverty and again it's because how this is exactly why right how deeply deeply exploited it was 
by, you know, King Leopold. And then when it won independence, it was completely undermined by, you know, Belgian and United States monopoly cooperative interest for capital, uh, versus, you know, Haiti won Freeman from France and was basically punished collectively by the United States and France over centuries for daring to, to be the first slave revolt. I mean, there are material reasons for this poverty and it's never just backwards people or oops, that country doesn't have resources. It, they very much do. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, but, you know, the race sciences will get back here and the, the, the well-meaning people, I guess, that just want to pretend the natural resources don't exist, get back here. But it's all bullshit. It's all colonialism. Dushanbe has promised not to nationalize investments valued at 150 million pounds and to retain 8,000 Belgians in the Congo. He has to set up an investment bank to manage all portfolios. The value is placed at 240 million pounds. It is controlled by Belgians. In one year, Union Minerais profits were 27 million pounds. But although the national production in Congo increased 60% between 1950 and 1957, African buying power decreased by 13%. The Congolese were taxed 280 million francs to pay Union uh, European civil servants, 440 million francs for special funds to Belgium, 1,329 million francs, so 1.3 billion francs for the army. They were even taxed for the Brussels exhibition. Despite political independence, the Congo remains a victim of imperialism and neocolonialism. But the economic and financial control of the Congo by foreign interests is not limited to the Congo alone. The developing countries of Africa are all subject to this unhealthy influence in one way or another. If this quotation appears to contain much detail, the newly independent peoples and their leaders have no more urgent task today than to burn into their consciousness exactly such detail, for it is such material that makes up the hard reality of this world in which we are trying to live and in which Africa is emerging and find its place. Again, just shut up and Nkrumah will say it better than you, David. The full significance of the part played by Union Minaret in Congolese affairs can only be understood if an examination is made of the interests involved in this powerful company. Nearly all the large enterprises engaged in exploiting the manifold riches of the Congo come within its immediate embrace or have indirect relations with it. They do not, however, complete the extent of the company's engagements. Its connections with leading insurance, financial, and industrial houses in Europe and the United States are shown in the following list, as well as its connections with Rhodesian Copper Belt. And now we're going to get a bunch of society general a big list. Just a big list, you know. Uh, minorities due to Conga, society general, basically everything Thing, uh, company to Kemens to Katanga Leopoldville, I just stuff like that. A right? lot. It's a like lot. a full page of, of things. We're and not going to read all, them. They're all very Belgian. They're um, all very Belgian. Very Belgian. Uh, Tanganyika Concessions is one parent of Union Minaret by Hot Katanga. The other was the Katanga Belgian Special Committee. Union Minaret was formed between them for the stated purpose of bringing together interests of both organizations in the mineral discoveries of Tanganyika concessions and had made under a concession granted to it by the committee in the Katanga province of the Congo. The concession, which has until 11 March 1990 to run, covers an area of 7,700 square miles, containing rich copper as well as zinc, cobalt, cadmium, germanium, radium, gold, silver, iron ores, and limestone deposits. Included is a tin area of some 5,400 square miles. 
Ores mined are processed at a number of plants, passing through smelting and concentration stages. Hydroelectrical energy is supplied from four main power plants, one of which was installed by the subsidiary of Union Mineray, the Society Generale des Forces Hydroelectriques. Three others belong to Union Mineray itself. These three plants are connected to a distribution network, part of which is devoted to supplying electrical power to the northern Rhodesian copper belt at the rate of 600 million kilowatts per year. Part of this network is owned by the Societe Generale Africaine d'Electric, or Sogalec, which in which Union Mineray has substantial interest. The company's plants at Elizabethville, Jadotville, Kalwezi, and Kapushi consumed 75 million kilowatts in 1962, during which year certain damages caused to the installations in December 1961 were completely repaired. Most of the concerns in which Union Mineray is interested are supported by the Societe Generale de Belgique. Many also have connections with Anglo-American corporation, either direct or by way of Tanganyika concessions, and Union Mineray and their subsidiaries. By the way, these are all companies we've been talking about for like 10 chapters, so hopefully we went away from a couple chapters, but hopefully all these names are familiar. Um, Societe Generale has direct holding of 57,000 shares out of the 1.2 million shares of no nominal value that constitute the authorized and issued capital of FRS eight billion uh, of Union Mineray. I guess that's francs, francs, eight yeah, billion francs be. of Union Mineray. Other principal shareholders are the Katanga Special Committee and the Tanganyika Concessions. Royalty on the concessions is paid to the Katanga Committee by way of some equivalent to ten percent of any dividend distributed over and above the total of ninety-three million francs in any year. Tanganyika Concessions, by agreement with the committee, shares in the special benefit to the extent of forty percent. Origin that shit. That's a big chunk. Uh, originally yeah. incorporated in the Congo, the company took its seat of administration and all its funds to Belgium during 1960, when the Congo was achieving independence and needed the support of those who, over the years, had drawn such heavy tribute from it. From and, it. And, of course, you're not going to get support from the, the people that have been suckling at the teat. You're just going to get a demand for more from them. From you. Exactly. Societe Generale's patronage hangs closely over Union Mineray. Attached to the Katanga Special Committee is the Compagnie du Katanga. The Katanga Company is within the group of the Compagnie du Congo pour le commerce et industrie, CCCI, constituted in 1886 when Leopold II was creating his personal empire in the Congo. It was on the initiative of one of Leopold's swashbucklers, Captain Thais, that CCCI, according to the chairman of Societe Generale, became the first Belgian enterprise established in the heart of Africa. His name is attached to the repair station of the first railway from Matadi to Leopoldville. Ticeville is now an important link in the railway system, and CCCI, in the words of Societe Generale's chairman, has since its inception been connected directly or through its affiliates with all sectors of economic activity in the Congo by the creation of transport enterprises, agricultural industries, cement works, construction and building concerns, property companies, food industries, as well as commercial firms. The company has affirmed the chairman contributed to endow the Congo with an equipage which places the country in the first ranks of the black African states. 
Several of these interlinked enterprises are included in the list of Union Minerais' interests, which frequently join those of Societe Generale. Thus, Societe Generale Metallurgique de Haboken, a company in which Societe Generale owns 50,000 shares of no par value, processes certain semi-finished products from the Union Minerais mines for the market in finished metals of high purity and individual specification. In conjunction with Fan Steel Metallurgical Corporation of Chicago, Hoboken created a joint subsidiary, Fan Steel Hoboken, in December 1962, with a capital of 360 million francs. This new company will produce refractory metals, notably tantalum, columbium, tungsten, and molybdenum, in various marketable forms. So, so just a little pause here, just to, to circle back, so so that we understand what this, you know, Society General Metallurgique de Hiboken is doing. So, the Union Mineral was technically independent, right? That's what was handed over to the Congolese government, two-thirds majority. So, only a third was taken out by Society General. But not only was that enough, and then they imposed these imperialist debts to really weaken the government's holdings, that it really wasn't making money off its two-thirds, while Society General was making plenty of money off its third by not hitting these taxes and fees of damages for daring to uprise for independence. Uh, but now with this Hoboken, Society General is going, oh, okay, so we're going to extract the resources. And then some of this needs to be developed there before it even leaves the country. Uh, except that's a different company, and oh, yeah. We own that, um, not you. So now we're going to profit again. Every step of the process. Yes. Wanky Colliery Limited represents Union Minerais' participation in Southern Rhodesia's coal mines. While its shareholding is not unimportant, Anglo-American Corporation predominates and acts as the company's secretary and consulting engineers. Capitalized at six million pounds, of which five point two million is paid up, the company owns coal mining rights over forty two thousand acres and surface rights over about twenty nine thousand acres of land in the Wanky district of southern Rhodesia. The means by which the mining interests dominate the government of the settler colonies are many, but the manner in which land is given away by the administration and then leased back from the buyers or lessees exhibits some of the most unashamed and open gerrymandering possible. Thus, Wanky Colliery obtained a long-term lease by agreement with the Rhodesian government surface rights to 26,000 acres of land additional to the above-mentioned stretches, in return for which Wanky has graciously leased some 4,000 acres of surface rights in its original land holding to the government. A directorial link, M. Van Weyenberg, associated Wanky Colliery with Societe Metallurgique du Katanga, Metalcat, a subsidiary of Union Minerai, founded in Belgium in 1948 in conjunction with S.A. des Mines, des Fondries, des Zinc, de la Villa Montaigne. To construct fun names, wood. just just fun names. That's love, lots love of the, them. Love the Belgian everything. <laughs> to construct at Colzai a plant capable of producing 50,000 tons of electrolytic zinc annually from concentrates provided by Union Minerais Prince Leopold Mine. The Metal Cat plant produces zinc, cadmium, and refined copper with a capital of 750 million francs, represented by 150,000 shares of no par value. The company made a net profit of 160 million francs in 1961 after providing for various liabilities, among which dividends accounted for 120 million francs, almost three quarters of net profit, and directors' percentages, 7.8 million francs. And then there's a chart of Union Minerai, and we all know they own everything. Union Minerai's partner in Metalcat, Ville Montaigne, is one of the big European mining concerns producing zinc, lead, and silver. 
a Belgian company founded in 1837. It has silver lead zinc properties in Belgium, France, Algeria, Tunis, Germany, and Sweden, and metallurgical works in Belgium, France, and Germany. Of the 405,000 shares of no par value constituting its capital of a 1 billion francs, Societe Generale owns 40,756. Its accounts for the year ended December 31st, 1961, showed a net profit of 143 million francs, after various provisions of which the largest was for re-equipment, accounting to 100 million francs, dividends took 101 million francs, and taxes thereon 27 million francs. Directors' percentages took 14 million francs. Legal reserves seemed to account for considerable sums which these large companies set aside. The item was credited with 100 million francs in Ville Montaigne's 1961 accounts. The Compagnie de du Katanga, like Union Minaret, attached to the Katanga Special Committee, joined Union Minaret in creating in the Congo in 1932 the Societe de Rocher. Rocherche. Rocher, we'll go with Rocher. Rocher du Sud Katanga, Sudcat. Both Compagnie du Katanga and Union Minaret had interests in a large area adjacent to the latter's properties, which they decided to combine. With Congolese independence, control of Sudcat as well as its funds were transferred to Belgium. Copper deposits at Musoshi, Muoshi, and Luembe, Luembe, yeah, zinc lead sulfur. Yeah, zinc, lead, sulfur ore bodies at Canegre and Lombe, owned by Sudcat, were transferred to the Societe de Exploitation des Mines du Sud Katanga. Mine Sudcat. Is that literally the word exploitation right in the middle of that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, just making sure. Formed in the Congo in June 1955 with a capital of Congolese francs of 50 million. So, again, you know, you're having companies with just exploitation in the name you're having most of the funds set aside for legal purposes because they've got to spin this shit into colonial law i very very grotesque you know corrupt shit to its bones top to bottom uh sudcat holds interest in the campania carbonifera de mocambique concerned with coal mining as well as the box of congo and metal cat Metalcat created a local company in 1962, the Society Metallurgique Catanganese, with a capital of 600 million francs, represented by 150,000 shares, to which it transferred its Katanga installations. The zinc ingots produced are being processed by Metalcat. One of Sutcat's most important investments is in Soga Mines Limited. This company, though registered in Montreal and operating in Canada, is so intimately connected with the Society Generale that it has on its board six of the Society's directors, two of whom are also in the Union Minaret Directorate. Again, these are all the same fucking people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Society General's investment in Soga Mines covers 259,000 preferred shares of $10 each and 1.2 million ordinary shares of $1 each, represented over one-fifth of the Canadian company's issued capital. A wholly owned subsidiary, Soga Mines Development Company Limited, is carrying out exploration work in various parts of Canada and holds minority interests in other mining enterprises. Soga Mines Limited is an investment and holding company participating in mining, oil, and industrial ventures. 
LC and FW Park, in The Anatomy of Big Business, graphically make the point that its relationship between Canada and Belgian capital are based on the alliances that operate in both Belgium and or the Congo and in Canada. I'm not sure which chart that's pointing to because it says page 157 and we don't have page numbers, but <laughs> charts and charts and graphs and charts. Uh Sogamine's parent, Society Generale, devotes considerable space in its annual report to the former's operations. The most important concern uh, in which they are interested is Canadian Petrofina Limited. In 1961, Canadian Petrofina made the record profit of $5.5 million. Petrofina is a Belgian oil company with international associations, especially in the new African states. Uh, this is talking, of course, talk, like the Guinea, Ghana area that they're talking about uh, with the new African states. Um, I lost my sense. Oh, there we go. Both inside and outside the oil industry, and its connections with the Society General are not limited to shareholdings and directorial interlocking. Associations are main, maintained with several leading banks, including the Bank Belge, the Bank de la Union Frangias, the Credit Foncière de Belgique, the Bank de Paris et de Paibas, and a number of insurance companies. Under the impetus of Society Generale and Concerned Associates, a subsidiary of Petrofina, Society Chim- Chimique de Derives du Petrols, or Petrochin, underwent a financial organization during 1962. There are too many like of these like slammed acronyms. That I just don't fucking, ah, you know, Uh, when certain assets were passed to it principally by Petrofina, uh, Society Generale used the opportunity to make a participation of 29 million francs to the company's capital, in which several other enterprises within its group equally own interest. Society Generale's shareholdings is 58 thousand shares of no par value. Kobanam, a joint venture of Petrochim and Union Cabride, brings another carbide. Th- Union carbide. Carbide. I can't Jesus let that Christ. one go. <laughs> I'm just I'm so screwed up with Belgian and French names. I carbide. know, I know. Just We're looking for actual, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Carbide <laughs> brings together banking interests of Society Generale with those interested with the Great American Chemical Corporation, the Continental Insurance Company, and the Hanover Bank, which is involved with Anglo-American Corporation and the banking consortia now engaging themselves in ventures with the New African states. There is some Rockefeller influence in the Hanover Bank, and it is linked by financial interchanges with the American Four Group of New York, a principal fire and casualty insurance company. So again, Big New York Insurance, Rockefeller, and the Anglo-American Corporation. All the fuck over again. Uh, Union... Union Carbide and Carbon manufactures enriched uranium, and through the influence of its direct backers, Hanover Bank and indirect associates with Rockefeller Mellon Group, has become the major contractor of the government-owned atomic energy plants in Oak Ridge, Tennessee and Paducah, Kentucky. For this purpose, a separate division was formed, Union Carbide Nuclear Company, uranium and vanadium mines being worked in Colorado and a tungsten mine in Mill in California. Union Carbide's range of interest in the chemical sphere is wide. It's having very large synthetic materials sector, a Canadian subsidiary of Union Carbide's in Shawingen Chemicals, which half, which it half owns in company with Monsanto Chemical. Oh, there's, we're hitting the local ones now, Nathan. Mm-hmm. 
and Canadian Rosins and Chemicals Limited, an affiliate of B.A. Shawing Limited, is owned by British American Oil, connected with the Bank of Montreal and Mellon. Shawinigan Chemicals, I keep wanting to say metals after that one for some reason, Chemicals, has several subsidiaries which are equally controlled with the U.S. companies. Society Generale has its own nuclear concern, Society Belge, pour les industries, les nucléaires, again, another slam acronym thing, Belgio Nucléaire, which in which we have noted Union Minerais interest. Um, and I feel like it's worth pausing because I we usually give good shout outs to like yeah. the biggest and worst of the baddies as they show their face. Union Carbide making their fun entrance into this scene. Uh, if you are not aware, we're the group responsible for the Bhopal disaster that left like thousands of people dead, I believe. And I was just an absolute like 500,000 people got exposed to basically uh, chemical weapons yeah. uh, as a result of them being a negligent group of psychopaths. Yeah. So and fuck union carbide. That's, that's, that's why they, they needed their own little jump out here. Well, and, and I, and I made a joke about, you know, local call outs cause Monsanto is based, you know, here in the St. Louis region now bought out by Bayer. Again, the shit's also interconnected. Um, but, Monsanto, uh, as we know, not only uh, who made Roundup, a carcinogen that has just been sprayed over God knows how much of the United States as a consumer product, uh, but they really made their hay early on. I mean, they'd been doing pesticides for a while, uh, but they jumped to a very big company by getting a government contract during the Vietnam War when the government was looking for chemical weapons and different types of Agent Orange, and Monsanto made the deadliest, most grotesque Agent Orange, which was dropped all over Vietnamese people, and there are still people facing birth defects from that, too, after it killed thousands um, absolutely so, yeah, i mean the real real grimiest of the grimy is being talked about here um this is only a single short strand of the tangled web that relates pro- predominant banking interests in europe and america to industrial undertakings in africa and other parts of the world it gives only the barest indication of the elastic character of these interests the incursions of Societe Generale into the oil world are not confined to Petrofina and its associates. Petrobelge, another company carrying out prospecting in the north of Belgium, is in association with the Societe Compagnies de Recherches et d'Exploitation Minerales, has an affiliate operating in Venezuela. Petrobelge de Venezuela. Petrobelge is linked with Petrofina and the Bureau de Recherche at Participations Minerais Marocaines in prospecting in Morocco the first stages of which will be completed in 1963. Italy is another scene of Petrobelge's activities, where in collaboration with the Italian company Ossonia Mineraria and the French organization Societe Francaise des Participations Petroliers, Petrobar, it is investigating hydrocarbons in the concessions obtained by Ossonia. In addition, Petrobelge has associated itself with an Italian-French-German consortium. Now, there's a gangbang of a, of a group. That is everything. a... Whoo, it's coming. For, they're coming. Uh, consortium in a venture prospecting seismic regions on the Adriatic coast. Both Petrobelge and Petrofina have got together with the Spanish company Cepesa to prospect for hydrocarbons within a concession owned by Cepesa. Direct links with Belgium's military program and, accordingly, with that of NATO are are closely operated. We are breaking out all the stops here. We got NATO. Everybody get in. 
uh, are closely operated through the Poundres Réunions de Belgique, whose capital was increased during 1962 from 200 million francs to 266 million francs. At the beginning of the year, it absorbed the Fabrique Nationale des Produits Chimiques de Explosifs at Bonacelles, Belgium, whose purchase included a participation in the capital of S.A. Dearnock. The acquisition of the latter's selling organization has added to the scope of the company's civil activities. These Belgian concerns are linked with the Societe Africa de Explosifs, Afrodex, in which Union Minaret has interests. The military and nuclear interpenetration gives a special emphasis to the uranium output of the Union Minaret complex, which in the post-war years upheld the Belgian economy and helped it to refurbish its industrial equipment. Out of the Congo came the spoils that provided for the further exploitation of the territory and the high productive ratio the lately devastated, war-ridden, and Nazi-occupied country attained so swiftly. Even before the Second World War, uranium was already making the Shibokwe mine a very important asset in Union Minaret and, Belgian, and the Belgian government. As one writer puts it, the Union Minaret achieved a certain notoriety in the 20s and 30s by obliging would-be purchasers of radium to pay $70,000 a gram until competition from the Canadian El Dorado company forced the price down to a mere 20000 per gram, at a level at which both companies were able to make a profit. That's cited from Anatomy of Big Business, page 156. Yeah, and and by the way, just on a morality scale, not that there's much left with this entire, every company named in this book, especially this chapter, but you really don't want to achieve a certain notoriety in Europe in the 20s and 30s. I'm sorry. No, no, not usually. Not usually. In uh, According to the calculation of experts, Union Minerais' profits were estimated to be 3 billion francs a year, 60 million in terms of American currency, and over 20 million pounds million in sterling. In spite of the disturbed situation in Katanga and the protests of the company that their business had been seriously impeded, Union Minerais' balance sheet for the year ended December 31st, 1960, showed a net profit of 2 billion francs. Dividends absorbed no less than 1.8 billion francs, rather more than half the net profits, carrying a dividend tax which went to the Belgian government of 381 million francs. Emoluments to directors, auditors, and staff fund for Europeans absorbed 84 million francs, while permanent committee members received 7 million francs. El Dorado Mining and Refining Limited is by no means independent of the big business and financial interests which have Canada's industry in their grip, and whose associations with Africa and other less developed areas of the world are interwoven. A former private security to an ex-minister sits on the board, which is linked with Canadian aluminum, whose directorate includes a former governor general of Canada. As we go along, we shall see how these interlockings of international finance and exalted public figures and the people's representatives create an oligarchy of power pursuing and achieving their special interests, which have no relation whatsoever to the public good. By the way, With there are they, air quotes over the people's representatives yes. and the public goods for anyone who's, who's listening good. along. Yes, <laughs> exactly. We shall find that the Royal Bank of Canada, represented on El Dorado's board by W.J. Bennett, has connections with Societe Generale and Union Minerais through interlockings via via Soga Mines, and prominent insurance and banking groups. Wanky Colliery Co. Limited, for instance, gives us M. Van Weyenberg, a director of Union Minerais, Metal Cat, and Societe Generale. 
Several of those directoral colleagues sit on Sogamines, whose chairman, W.H. Howard, besides being a vice president of the Royal Bank and chairman of the Montreal Trust, is linked with the Rothermere newspaper group in Great Britain and is a director of Algoma Steel Corporation, which owns four coal mines in West Virginia and limestone and dolomite deposits in Michigan. Algoma supplied the steel for the construction of the $20 million plant at Salt St. Marie, Ontario. For the Manisman Tube Company, a subsidiary of Manisman Steel Company, which is a prominent member of the Ruhr industry of Western Germany. Mansman is said to be fast increasing its penetration into Canadian industry. Its board includes representatives of the Deutsche Bank and Dresdner Bank, both of which are much in evidence in the consortia engaged in Africa and connected predominantly with Anglo-American Corporation. Chairman of Man is Men since 1934, W. Zanger, a former member of the Nazi Party and of the SS, oh good. Yeah. He was one of the group of big German industrialists who financed the Nazi rise to power and provided armaments for the Nazi war machine. In the days of the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, Manus Man opened short-lived affiliates in Kiev and Denny Propstrovsk. Holy shit. Yeah. Um, so again, we are talking about Deutsche Bank affiliates here, and Deutsche Bank was deeply deeply nestled into the Nazi party because remember there are just straight up right wing um, well off liberals as well as you know a bunch of, of petty bourgeois aggrieved support uh, that go into these these fascist groups right I mean we talk about like like liberals passively allowing fascists to get into power but there are liberals that are are well off liberals that are straight off fascists we tend to call them conservatives um, and then of course there are plenty of, of petty bourgeois um, people that that you know from like in America we can think of the big truck owners that don't need their fucking trucks in the suburbs and fly fucking flags on them um, that that enthusiastically go with these parties and the Deutsche Bank was one of those big big you know conglomerates that was deep into the Nazi party they actually directly profited from the Holocaust uh, when Jews were filed into concentration camps and had their belongings and their wealth just snatched away they all went it all went to the Deutsche Bank I mean it's just a straight transfer of wealth from the Jewish population to the Deutsche Bank they are monsters good this has been a big uh, hitter of an episode. Hold we, on, hold on. Yes. Just trust me. Do one more page. No, no, no. I know. We've only got one. We've only got one paragraph left. Yeah, I got okay, this. okay, good. These are the forces that link with the South African, Rhodesian, Congo, Angolan, and Mozambique mining magnates and industrialists, and we see them now entering the development projects of many of the new African states, hiding their identity behind government and international agencies whose real character is at once exposed when their affiliations are carefully examined. They are the real directors of neocolonialism. This, this chapter, and I know we got it, we got it packed in with the end of another chapter in one episode, so we almost didn't even give it its own chapter, but this chapter was a banger. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it really, really showed the web spun together and who's really controlling it and and how. And, and you can start, I mean, we talked about, you know, Deutsche Bank and he pointed out Nazi Germany and the SS. We talked about uh, Monsanto. You know, we talked about these, these different groups, uh, Union Carbide, and you could start piecing history together pretty immediately when you realize who these groups are. Yeah. Yeah, it is wild, and it is so uh, 
I would love a. a we got to find it. We got to find imperialism three. We had imperialism one. We got that from Lenin. Then we got imperialism two, like fifty years later, give or take. Uh, and and it's been like fifty or so years since neocolonialism. We need a new. We need a new neocolonialism. Like, where's the gang at now? <laughs> Are, who's who's still hanging out doing some neocolonialism? Who's doing who's doing more be, imperialism be, these yeah, days? It would be like U.S. hegemony, the highest stage of neocolonialism. It'd be everything after the fall of the Soviet <laughs> Union. That's basically what it'd be. There yeah. you go. Yeah, we need that. I we need that book. Somebody write that book right now. Um, I have a feeling you know Domenico Lucerto probably has written something like that, and we just haven't realized the title of it. That was about to say. And if you know where that book is, hit us up. And there are a number of different ways you can hit us up because it's the end of the show. We're doing the outro now. Look at how seamless that was. Uh, that <laughs> no gear said, grinding you, whatsoever. None at all. <laughs> you can uh, reach out. This is Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. You can reach out to us in a number of different ways. The first of which is to hit us up through email we are marks madness pod at gmail.com if you wanted to get us on a shorter format uh way of writing you could go to us on twitter our twitter is at marks madness pod uh and our dms are open if you would prefer to communicate that way as opposed to email uh and last but not least we have the most tried and true method of getting at least nathan's attention most of the time uh and that is discord uh because that's where i spend most of my time uh discord discord community is linked in our twitter bio or we will always email you the uh link if you prefer that uh but uh discord just a great community of people uh we all talk we had a we had a very very we had a long form discussion today around uh the rate of profit to fall uh it just just spontaneously that david was called to and didn't arrive at like an absentee father i you know uh, what okay i did get a ring and then when i hit it it didn't it, it like linked me bl- uh, blindly to the thread where i couldn't see who called me out or anything and so i was confused so i tried i'm sorry <laughs> you 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 know what you did that be, <laughs> that all said uh discord's great uh we play final fantasy it's fun uh and if you don't like final fantasy well just, you, you, there's other stuff too it's good we talk about communism all day book club it's good times uh that being said david Time for a disclaimer. Let's go. Uh, yeah. So um, obviously, since we started doing this, you know, Nathan came up to me one time and was like, hey, let's read Capital together, which is good because it's a book you want to read together. And we thought, well, you know, our group's only two people. It's a pretty small group. And so we recorded it just in case we decided it was good enough to share with other people. And then lo and behold, after long enough, we decided, you know, this this would work. Uh, we can do this. And we started putting it out there. And now we have thousands of you uh, reading along with us. And that's outstanding. Um, and some, since the beginning, something we've always hoped for is hopefully you're out there and whatever party you're in, whatever group you're organizing with, um, hopefully whatever political education group or reading group they have is reading these works along with us. And we could be another voice, another point of input in those groups. Uh, let's say that's not happening and whatever party you're organizing in or group you're organizing in uh, is reading shorter works or something more applicable to a project that they're on. Hopefully then when you read these books, we can be your reading group and we can give you more input. We can help you soak it in and reflect on it better and and give you another um, perspective on things as well as the context around it. And let's say that's not happening. Let's say it's either uh, something like this where we're reading word for word and it's enhanced ebook or something where we give more of a summary. Uh, As long as we can make sure these works are more accessible to you and you have them out there guiding your actions and when you put these works into actions – it's a phenomenon called praxis. And certainly, you know, we need you out there doing praxis uh, now more than ever. And by definition, without theory, there is no such thing as praxis since it is theory in action. And without the praxis, these theory is completely useless. They go hand in hand. They are tied at the hip. 
Amen. As always, that being said, this is Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.